Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Mark DeSouvero. My first guest is Jed Morse, the curator of Mark DeSouvero Steel Like Paper at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. The exhibition surveys DeSouvero's career with a special focus on DeSouvero's in studio practice, such as his drawings and his little considered modestly scale sculptures, which make up the vast majority of his oeuvre. It is the most extensive survey of DeSouvero's work in over 30 years and the largest museum exhibition of such since 1975. DeSouvero is on view through August 27th. The excellent catalog for the exhibition was published by The Nasher. On the second segment, African Modernism in America, 1947 to 67, at Fisk University in Nashville. But first, Jed Morse, after the break. I'm delighted to announce the next Modern Art Notes podcast live taping. It'll be with artist Monique Verdun at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University on February 16th. Verdun is among the artists featured in Spirit in the Land, a forthcoming Nasher exhibition that examines present ecological concerns from a cultural perspective and that demonstrates how our identities and natural environments are intertwined. We'll be presenting the live taping in association with the folks at the Nasher at 4 p.m. on Thursday, February 16th, the day the exhibition opens to the public. Please join us for Monique Verdan and Spirit in the Land on February 16th at the Nasher. On view through February 19th, 2023 at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, the captivating new photography exhibition Udabarth Peripheral Vision investigates the act of looking. In her multi-part works, Barth explores the impermanent qualities of light, as well as its ability to affect optical perception using techniques like intentionally blurring images and capturing the way light travels across a room throughout the day. The exhibition traces Barth's 40-year career, from her early experimentations as a student to later studies of the eye's capabilities and the camera's role in helping an artist translate visual information into a photograph. Her most recent work is displayed here for the first time, a project commissioned in celebration of the Getty Center's 20th anniversary. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio, the most extensive exhibition dedicated exclusively to the artist's drawing practice. The exhibition covers the full range of Riley's career, from her student days in the late 1940s, through her groundbreaking black-and-white optical works of the early 1960s, to the innovative color studies she has undertaken from the late 60s to the present day. Bridget Riley Drawings from the Artist's Studio is co-organized by the Hammer Museum, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Morgan Library and Museum. On view at the Hammer from February 4th through May 28th, 2023. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Jed Morse, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. At the outset of your catalog essay, you write that it is Mark DeSouvero who, more than anyone else, brought sculpture to the point of engaging with architecture and infrastructure, such as bridges and skyscrapers. And I think we all know that from the DeSouvero's, or at least we're all familiar with that from the DeSouvero's we all we all you know see in big public spaces. And you add that your project to complicate that understanding. In what directions do you want to expand our understanding of DeSouvero's oeuvre? Well, I mean, uh, to your point, I think most people are familiar with the kind of large scale steel constructions that 
grace public plazas across the United States, around the world. And they represent a really extraordinary achievement by the artist to build on that scale, to make work of that size, to have it in very broadly accessible public places in major cities around the world. And, and that's become what he's best known for. And over, you know, well over a hundred large scale works in public places around the world. In fact, I think the studio has has recorded in their records, you know, over 200 works larger than 12 feet tall that Mark has made throughout his career. They also have recorded in their database over 844 works five feet or tall or smaller. Wow. And so the vast majority of his output over his six-decade career have been, you know, relatively small things. And it's that aspect of his work, that kind of more intimate work that he can do by himself without the help of assistance or, you know, major construction equipment like cranes, you know, the, the, that very intimate work of the artist manipulating material, directly engaging with material on his own that I'm most interested in and that this exhibition focuses on. Yeah, I hadn't known that stat until I read the catalog. I, maybe, maybe I mean, had you known it before you started the project? You, you know, no, not the statistics. You know, just colloquially having seen so many of the large scale works, but relatively few of the smaller scale works. And so, you know, that that begged the question of the studio. So, how many of of each kind of you know, each scale of object are there in the artist's output. And that's how we we hit on those statistics. Yeah, it just uh, that was just absolutely wild to me. It made me feel very immediately stupid. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's really a staggering number because, you know, we don't we don't see so many of the smaller scale works. You know, they're included in in exhibitions, you know, in, in smaller numbers. They're also shown in, in, in his gallery exhibitions, but you, you don't really run into a lot of them. And so, yeah, it was just as staggering to me to find out that there were that many of the kind of more intimate small-scale works. And, and I think that museums of, of modern and early contemporary art, have, many of them have in the last decade eliminated their permanent sculpture space. Think of the Hirshhorn or, or become primarily paintings museums, things of, of SF MoMA and, and its collection galleries. You write that a key early development in DeSouvreau's work dating back to the early 1960s was his making of sculptures with moving parts. And so that includes both the small works we've been, we've been referencing, uh, works that you know, might sit on a tabletop, for example, but it also includes immense multi-part works such as the early masterpiece, the A-Train from 63-64, which is not in the show. Why is DeSouvreau's construction of works with moving parts an important development, both in the context of 1960s sculptural practice and then for DeSouvreau's career really ever after? I mean, I think, you know, movement and energy and the sense of a body occupying space are elements of, of his work, even dating back to kind of the most, the earliest sculptures, 
the figurative sculptures, the sculptures of hands, as well as the first abstract sculptures that are stationary. You know, there's always the sense of the possibility of movement, and that could be through mm. suspended elements, elements kind of held in stasis that that give a palpable sense of the potential energy that they hold. Let that, me interrupt really quick. Yeah. The first, um, the first large work in the show, Hank Champion from 1960 at the Whitney, yeah. is a work that is exactly what you're describing in a live image on manpodcast.com. It's standing up and it's kind of held together by chains but it looks like one good earthquake and everything would change. So that is a, an example of a very early example of, of de Suvero's shift in, in his practice, moving away from expressionist figurative modeled sculptures of, of hands that, that were literally modeled in, in wax over wire armatures to, you know, using these elements from, you know, buildings in lower Manhattan, hundred year old buildings in lower Manhattan that were being destroyed and taking timbers out of those buildings to use as sculptural material and making these incredible abstract compositions with them that really engage space in incredibly dynamic ways. You know, each element kind of moves out at a diagonal in its own direction, it's anchored by this enormous single timber at one point, and everything kind of builds off of that one kind of anchored vertical rectangular timber. And the chain is interesting because it's it's less structural than you might think. The timbers are actually connected by, you know, essentially all thread that runs through one into the next so that they are, you know, there's hardware that, that connects each one timber to the next. The chain is, is actually more describing a line and it's mm -hmm. describing a line through the space that the composition defines. And it's meant to act as a kind of line of tension. And it, it's it's much less structural than you might anticipate, but it does activate that space of the interior of the form in a really effective way. I mean, it just, it feels like in the gallery, when you're standing there with it, it kind of sprays out in all directions mm -hmm. and does that thing that all really great sculpture does in drawing your eye around it so that you have to move in order to understand it. You have to walk around the sculpture mm. and that experience of viewing the sculpture is, you know, becomes part of one's communion with it. And I think ultimately that's the direction that, that de Suvero decides to take is decides to express that, you know, that kind of inherent interactive quality of viewing a sculpture but doing it in, in much more direct ways. And the potential for moving parts that might be activated by a viewer was part of that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there, there was, you know, one of the reasons I think that, you know, so before early on in his career, it's clear that that, that relationship between the viewer and the object and the way that they both occupy space dynamically is very important 
And I think it becomes even more important after his accident when, you know, he becomes paralyzed from the waist down. Movement becomes integral to a lot of the works. And he creates works that have moving parts and that are meant for people to occupy and to move with the sculpture. So, you know, uh, one of the early kind of interactive sculptures that he makes, it's in the exhibition, is called Love Makes the World Go Round. And it's this, you know, wonderful welded steel uh, sculpture that has uh, a suspended element on a fulcrum with two tires on either end. And, and, and people are meant to kind of sit in the tires and balance and, and kind of bob and move and, and, and circle around the fulcrum. So it's a little bit like a, a ride or a kind of eccentric teeter-totter in that way. And, and that's 1961, 62. So shortly, he's still in a wheelchair and shortly after his accident. Because he's making, he's essentially making sculpture that is, he's making a lot of sculpture for the kids in his neighborhood, essentially, to come and play on. <laughs> well, speaking of that, you write that large-scale works that set the participating viewer in physical motion, if you will, outnumber the stationary works two to one. Another DeSouvero output stat I never would have guessed three weeks ago. You know, as I thought of my experience with DeSouvero's, I could only think of a single one I'd ever been on. The, the extraordinary, muscularly whimsical blubber of 1979-80 at the Toledo Museum of Art. How did it come that DeSouvero wanted to make participatory works that anybody could swing in or climb on? I think part of it was just being a part of a community uh, in lower Manhattan in, you know, the 1960s. And in the 1960s, you know, he lived, he had a, he had a third floor loft on Front Street near the Fulton Fish Market, South Street Seaport. And you know, it was a it was a pretty rough area around that time, and there were, you know, there were municipal housing projects in the area, and the kids, the kids from the municipal housing, you know, would play in the streets, and you know, he would, you know, he'd let them come up to his studio and and climb on the sculptures that he was making, and he always he always credits the kids with teaching him how to make sculptures that move um, what works what doesn't work and you know so he would make he would essentially make sculpture that the children from the neighborhood would play on could play on they're from you know these kinds of eccentric swings sculptural swings that you know that hung from the rafters in his studio to you know little vehicles eccentric little vehicles and push carts that they could push each other around in and you know oftentimes he would give these things away to you know to the kids in the neighborhood so that they could you know play on them out out in the street and out you know out in the, on the sidewalks and you know he he continued to to make swings not only to incorporate into sculptures but also, you know, to essentially give away to the community as as they wanted or needed them. You know, when he was in Chicago in the late 1960s, you know, he he made a really wonderful swing for what was called a people's park, which essentially was a lot that had been 
that had been completely cleared and it was a you know a lower income area of Chicago that the city was hoping to redevelop essentially into a higher income area and was slowly kind of pushing out the residents tearing down buildings and until they found someone to redevelop those lots those lots would be vacant and the people who lived in the neighborhood would take them over the kids would just use them as an empty you know as a as a kind of play area and they these became known as people's parks because the people in the neighborhood just just kind of took them over and you know he donated you know swings set up things for kids to play on in in the people's park in chicago in 1969 there is an absolutely insane photograph in the catalog of desuvero's 28 foot tall our years what for marianne moore from 1967 a sculpture now on the mall side of the hirshhorn so there's this amazing picture of it in the catalog in 1973 installed in grand rapids Anyway, it's insane, comma, what does the picture show? <laughs> I love that photograph. I mean, it just, in your your description of it as insane is particularly apt. You know, there are kids climbing all over the I-beams of the sculptures. And, and, and one of the distinguishing elements of that sculpture is from, you know, the highest point an angled L I-beam is suspended on a cable from the highest point. And it must be the bottom of that L-beam must be at least 15, 20 feet above the ground. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And extraordinarily in this photograph with all these kids climbing on it, there's a there's one boy who is sitting beam <laughs> and every time i see that photo it just it takes my breath away there's another boy that's hanging from one of the girders and his feet must be a good 10 12 feet above the ground like ready ready to drop it looks like absolute chaos and also like the kids are having the best time in the world climbing all over that sculpture <laughs> It's the, the the kid who's sitting quietly in the suspended I-beam in the photograph, which I think we'll have on manpodcast.com. There are three mm-hmm. children who are sitting under that floating I-beam, and they've all got their hands on it as if they're swinging it back and forth. Um, <laughs> apparently, apparently... Apparently, there were no personal injury lawyers in Michigan in 1973 or, 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 you know, I mean, A, nothing happened and B, it didn't occur to anyone that meaningfully that it might. The other, the other extraordinary thing I think about that photograph, which may explain something is that you also don't see many adults in that no. image. No, there's, there, there's one elderly woman in the back left of the, of the photograph who's, who's looking on with her you can't see her face but her body poses of like what the f yeah that's about it for the adults in the picture <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you don't you don't see a lot of that these days most you know the, the <laughs> institutions especially if it's in a you know a museum collection nowadays they really kind of frown on you know people touching works of art much less climbing all over them and i think given kind of the litigious nature of of the us you know, uh, over the past 30 or so years, 
legal advisors of museums also probably tell them they should not allow people to climb on them for that reason as well. Yeah. So speaking of all of this sculptural element floating and being activated by people and hovering above the ground and swinging back Mm -hmm. and forth, you vaguely hint in your essay that there may be biographical reasons for why such construction, such composition interested De Suvero. I guess first, is that a is it fair by me to read that as a hint? And and if it is, what are those biographical reasons? Yeah, I think it's a I hint at it because because it's inferred in the work. Yeah. You know, and so you know, Hank Champion is is a linchpin for in his in his career and in this exhibition for a number of reasons. Number one is it was he, you know, he was he was building it and, and a couple of other large-scale timber sculptures, you know, in 1960. And then in March of that year, you know, he was doing one of the many odd jobs that he took to help, you know, make a living and pay rent and, you know, buy groceries and all the kinds of things that a young artist need to do to live, suffered a, a horrible accident. He was pinned for an hour by an elevator under a thousand pounds of pressure. And, and it, it paralyzed him from the waist down. The doctors at the time told him he was lucky to be alive, number one, and that he had about an 80% chance that he would never walk again. At the same time, at, while he is in the hospital, the dealer, Richard Bellamy, who had made a studio visit with Mark and, and set an expressed interest in showing his work, then before the accident, came to visit him in the hospital and offered him his first solo exhibition at Bellamy's new gallery, a venture called Green Gallery. And so, you know, imagine that, you know, you are a young artist and you're making work that you think, you know, is 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 a a new direction in 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 your practice. And there's a dealer who who is interested in it and you've just suffered this terrible accident and you don't really know if you're going to be able to continue making that kind of work because it requires all it requires you to use your body and all of your physical strength in order to make it i mean these timbers are enormous he was dragging them up the three flights of stairs to his loft in order to use them and make something out of them and he largely made Hank Champion on his own. And so this opportunity, I think, gave him a reason to continue despite that horrific accident. You know, even though he was in a wheelchair, you know, he, he took the opportunity to make this exhibition in October of, of 1960. So really just six months after his accident. And he had to rely on, you know, family and friends to help him finish up and install the works for the show. So the reason the sculpture from the Whitney has the title Hank Champion is it's named after Mark Suvero's brother, Henry de Suvero, who was studying law in Boston at the time and came out during his summer break to, to help him finish that sculpture in particular. And so there's that moment where everything has to change. He can't use his body the way he did before, you know, and he's, he's unable to move and engage with the world in the way that he did before. 
and he's suddenly placed in a wheelchair. And so part of his everyday experience is wheeling through his environment. And so both by being paralyzed from the waist down and being set on wheels, you know, the, the element of motion becomes a, a much more tangible aspect in his life, but also in his work. You see that reflected in works that have moving elements that spin, that dangle, that swing. And it's, and it's an element that he continues to explore through, throughout his entire career. In a possibly related story, why did DeSouvro learn to use a crane to make work? And then does that experience inform the smaller scale work? Yeah. Yeah. There are really two things I think that, that come out of that, that accident. One is when he's still in the rehabilitation hospital after the accident, he learns how to weld. In fact, you know, he talks about using this asbestos apron over his lap in the wheelchair to while he's learning how to weld so he doesn't burn himself and that's that's you know that's a new element in his work and it's one that he would use for the rest of his life and then the other the other part is the use of the crane using machines to help him build larger scale sculptures i mean when he showed the work like Hank Champion at the Green Gallery in 1960. Donald Judd, who was an artist, but also made a living writing reviews for a variety of arts magazines, wrote a review of the Green Gallery show and said that, you know, the size of the objects were thunderous. They had that kind of an impact. I mean, we're used to seeing things that are, you know, 30, 40, you know, the tallest sculpture DeSouvre ever made was, you know, 92, almost 93 feet tall. But at the time, in 1960, Hank Champion, which, you know, I think the, t- the highest point is maybe nine or 10 feet, and it spreads out, you know, about 12, 12, 13, 14 feet. Those sculptures were considered to be enormous and had a palpable energy and presence in the gallery space. And so building, trying to build on that scale without being able to use one's body eventually required him to 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 use machinery to help him and other people as well and it was the welding that actually led to the crane work because it, so it was in you know by 1965 he was you know he was able through rehabilitation to walk with the aid of braces but still you know paralyzed from the hips down and he was using his newfound skill as a welder to trade time in a scrapyard in Brooklyn, basically cutting up scrap metal for the scrapyard and trading his time doing that, working with the owner of the scrapyard who ran a crane. And he would run the crane and help him, you know, build sculptures in, you know, 19. 19- 66. Actually, the sculpture in St. Louis, Praise for Elohim, is one of the large-scale steel and, and timber sculptures that come out of that, that exchange with the, the scrapyard crane operator. And then he didn't learn how to, to operate a crane himself 
until he participated the next year in what was called the International Sculpture Symposium, Toronto International Sculpture Symposium in 1967 in Toronto, Canada. He was invited, one of a dozen artists that were invited to, you know, come do a residency for a couple of months. They were given a place to stay, a stipend and materials and support for making sculpture for what would be the first kind of permanent sculpture park in Toronto called High Park. And DeSupero ended up working with a crane operator there who he recalls his name was Ollie, although he doesn't remember what the crane operator's last name was, and made, made three sculptures at the Toronto International Sculpture Festival in 1967, two of which remain in, in Toronto. And then one of which, the smallest of them, which he titled Crete, came back to, came back to New York with him. And, and we have Crete in the exhibition, and it's this important touchstone because it, it really is one of the very first welded steel constructions that he made, welded steel I-beam constructions that he made with the crane. And it has this dangling I-beam with this kind of, kind of abstract icon cut out of the middle of it that predates the dangling I-beam, I-beam angle in our year's what for Marianne Moore that's in the Hirshhorn collection now, which would be the first sculpture that he made operating the crane himself the next year, or actually, I mean, right after he got back from Toronto and started, actually got a, an award, uh, I think it was for a National Endowment of the Arts Award, $5,000, which he used to buy a crane and repair it. And mm started using it in his kind of uh, studio yard in uh, in New Jersey in late 1967 and made our years what um, with that that dangling I-beam angle. It's interesting to me, but I don't know if it's meaningful that DeSuvero is basically learning to weld and use a crane at about the same time. And I don't know if that manifests itself in the work, but mm-hmm. It seems like it might have. Yeah. He did make some larger, you know, fairly sizable kind of timber and steel constructions in 1965 back in Northern California. When he, he, in 1965, he went to live with his parents for a little while in in Northern California and ended up showing some of those at at the Dwan Gallery, Virginia Dwan's Gallery in, in L.A., later in 1965. Let me jump in for yeah. a, a, a moment. These are pieces in which pieces of timber appear to be held in the air, you know, suspended as it were. And what is suspending them is welded metal elements. So a little yeah. bit of welding, a little bit of crane. A little bit. Of, well, and, and actually those works, I don't think he was using a crane to assemble them. No, I mean, I think, no, no. I just mean that yeah. the, by, the, by kind of things being suspended, it feels like those works may have been informed by how cranes suspend large things. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think his, it very well could be. I mean, one of the things that I think was, you know, really critical for DeSuvero throughout the sixties was, and he shared this with a lot of artists that he was friends with, like from, from the park place group, you know, was, was, you know, really kind of, imbibing the dynamism of the city moved to New York in 
1957 and really throughout the 60s and his his founding of you know the park place group and and his association with them in the mid 60s you know that and also this interest in science and science fiction and you know kind of advanced geometries and mathematics you know those all kind of you know the work of uh, you know buckminster fuller all of those interests kind of merge in, into and for for which for de Subaru, i think is expressed most directly in his admiration for einstein and you know einstein's theory of of relativity and this kind of understanding that you know, space can only really be experienced through through time. And it's something that you see, it comes up over and over and over again in his work. This sense of, of dynamism, of inhabiting space, of moving elements, potential energy, you know, that at one point he says, you know, we're all children of Einstein. <laughs> Those of us who, who, you know, were born after after Einstein's theory of relativity and, and we don't, you know, and so he can't experience space without the element of time. And it's one of the reasons why he ended up, you know, naming his studio in Long Island city space time constructs company. So that really it kind of undergirds everything he's doing from, you know, the 19, you know, the mid 1970s. I think he adopts that, that name in the night in the late 1970s early 1980s um, but really throughout his his work from the 60s on before getting to the works on paper the drawings i want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the tabletop scaled sculptures all not all of which but but most of which are 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 welds it sure seems to me like they are uh, an extended prolonged from the late 60s into the aughts engagement with david smith is there something to that idea or was DeSuvero thinking at and looking at other things and other, other artists? I mean, David Smith is an enormous presence in for anyone making welded steel sculpture in the United States. And, and, you know, you know, David Smith was the father of welded steel sculpture in the U S having, you know, seen photographs of, of the sculpture of Julio Gonzalez and, and, the welded steel sculptures of Picasso that Gonzalez helped him make, <laughs> you know, in magazines and taking this trade that he had learned to make a living in the Studebaker factory and, and using it to make art. And so David Smith was a, an enormous figure in, in welded abstract steel sculpture, you know, up until the, the you know, the time he died in, in, in the mid 1960s. And so, you know, Mark Subaru is picking up on that legacy and carrying it forward. So, yeah, Smith is always an important touchstone, but, you know, Brancusi was also an essential touchstone for him. You know, he, and very early on in his career, 19, in the early 1960s, he made a sculpture called Homage to Brancusi, which has this kind of chair that's, you know, propped up and, and sits about you know, five feet in the air and one is meant to climb up into the chair. And so essentially it gives this kind of elevated view of the space 
around the person sitting in the chair as if, you know, he's paying homage to Brancusi, giving all of the sculptors after him an elevated view of what sculpture can be. You know, there, there, there was also, uh, you know, he's also had a very strong interest in, in Alberto Giacometti and his sculpture. And I think that, that comes through in, in these really subtle kind of experiments in, with scale. I mean, obviously he explores scale from, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the smallest handheld object to enormous public sculptures. But in the 1960s, you know, there's several works in the exhibition that have these, you know, kind of metal elements that hold weighty timbers aloft, kind of in kind of bobbing in in midair. And one of them has these these tiny little metal rods, maybe an inch tall, kind of clustered together. One of them, one cluster of rods is underneath a, a large timber that's kind of precariously held over them on on a met, by a metal strap and then another one there are a group of these small rods that are at the end of this kind of long ground plane and and at the the upper end of this metal you know bent metal base is another kind of large piece of timber and so you know, there's the sense of these tiny things encountering something that compared to those tiny things are, you know, enormous. You know, there's this sense of, you know, the sublime. If we were, you know, in, in 19th century Victorians, we'd be talking about the sublime in, in encountering something like that. And so, yeah, I mean, there are a number of artists, but those, those you know, smaller welded steel sculptures in particular, I think you are, you know, they, they owe, they, they owe quite a bit to, to David Smith. I think one, one element of de Suvero's work that, that distinguishes de Suvero's work from, from Smith's is, you know, his willingness to let the composition take its own shape, to really go by intuition and as he's making something, let it take him a new direction. Smith's work tends to be, you know, f- fairly controlled. More so as he aged, too. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in terms of the compositions, and he's very careful in composing. And DeSuvero, I think, is more willing to let his internal visceral response to the form that is taking shape in front of him as he's making it lead him mm. to something that he might not have had in mind when he started making that thing. So really embracing that, that kind of intuitive aspect of, of composing, of making a work of art that was inherent really to, you know, to the, what the abstract expressionist painters and, and sculptors also were, you know, we're, we're trying to do. I, I think that's why a lot of late Smith doesn't hold up for me personally. And it almost in your telling sounds like DeSuvero found ways out of the dead ends Smith was, was making for himself. There is a work in your collection at the Nasher called for WB Yates from 85, 87, that for me 
is a kind of rare DeSouvero that hovers between the tabletop work. I mean, it's a large outdoor work, but it seems involved in many of the interests of the, the, the interior tabletop scaled pieces, hovering between that and, and the big outdoor pieces, of course, which you also have in your collection. This is all a long way of asking. Have you been thinking of, for WB Yates, any differently or in new ways since you started working on this project? Yeah. You know, the exhibition includes a number of sculptures that, you know, you describe as, as kind of tabletop sculptures because they're moderately sized. They're, they're, they're fairly small in, in, in the realm of de Suvero's work, but, you know, they, they tend to be, you know, maybe just two feet tall. And, but they, the, the key element to a number of these sculptures is, you know, they have a base and then an upper element that balances on a fulcrum and can can bob and spin and 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 move and we can colloquially refer to them as spinners and before getting into this this project i was familiar with the elements in de Subaru's work that you know that moved or that turned but you know now primarily through for wb yates the work in the sculpture center which is kind of a moderately scaled work for, for DeSouvero. And then it's, you know, it's only about, you know, six or seven feet tall and probably spreads, you know, maybe 10 or 12 feet, but it has these, you know, it's this assemblage of various elements that are on that balance on a fulcrum and kind of teeter and twirl and, and can be moved in a way that engages the space around it. And after having seen so many of, you know, the the smaller scale spinners, what I, I recognize now in for WB Yates is that it, it really is one of you know the most elaborate spinners that he's he's ever made. He even makes large scale sculptures that have these kinds of elements balanced on a fulcrum that can spin and turn and bob. But the sculpture in this, the Nasher collection that's dedicated to the poet W.B. Yeats really is one of the most kind of complex in its in the way that that balanced portion is cut in the and and welded in in the plates the kinds of geometry that are happening within it the various multiple elements that move and so it is. I think as much as we we intuit the dynamism of those smaller spinning sculptures and see how our perception of them and the space that they inhabit changes as it moves with something the size of for WB Yeats, we feel it. We feel the mass of that object as it as it tilts and teeters and twirls and, and, and moves through space in a way that we don't with, you know, the smaller scale ones, which are so, you know, so, so beautiful and, and, and light and whimsical. I mean, a lot of his, his work is, you know, taking at any scale really is taking this material that we associate with massive construction bridges, skyscrapers, you know, industrial material like steel and rendering it, if not weightless, you know, as, as light as a feather. 
yeah, a lot of the Subaru feels a lot lighter than it must be. <laughs> yeah. Your show includes a lot of drawings, works on paper, paintings. You write in the catalog that for DeSuvro, drawings are rarely descriptive and, quote, never instructional. Are they endpoints in and of themselves, or is he using them as part of a process that you've come to understand? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're rarely endpoints. Most of the time, they're starting points. And so, you know, DeSuvero talks about drawing in relation to the sculptural practice. And, and it's often an effort to capture momentarily the, that burst of, of inspiration, you know, where he, he has an idea and he wants to get the essence of it down on paper quickly. And so they do, almost all of the drawings have you know, a distinct energy to them, even the ones that, that have a, you know, very recognizable form that they describe a sculptural form that they describe the, the way that the marking goes down on paper kind of transfers the energy with which he's, he's trying to get that idea down. And he's often said that, you know, if he can capture the energy that he wants to get out of a work in a drawing, then he can do it in the sculpture. And so it's almost as if, you know, those drawings are meant to indicate, I mean, I I think I make the comparison with, you know, kind of futurist compositional elements, like their lines of force, you know, that they're meant to indicate speed and direction and energy more than they are, you know, structure and form. And in fact, a lot of his drawings, I mean, one can't recognize any structural element in them at all. I mean, they, they, they are, you know, they, a lot of them are, are about the engagement with the paper. And so they're, they're very, they tend to be very abstract and you'll, you know, you'll have, they're almost kind of like about mark making the way that kind of, you know, calligraphy or, or. Chinese painting is about mark making. The mark is what expresses what's essential. And so you have these incredible drawings that are done, you know, with marker or pen or sometimes, you know, uh, silver markers that then have these kind of, you know, swaths of, of, of ink brushed over them very quickly which also communicate emotion and an energy more so than they communicate a kind of sculptural form. Although the relationship in the viewer's eye, at least the viewer knowing DeSuvero's sculptural output is part of what gives them their weight. We think of the relationship between the fluid ink and eye beams, and that tension is part of what gives, I think, those drawings their excitement. I want to wrap up by talking about something I'm embarrassed to say I had never thought about before about a month ago, and that is DeSuvero and his relationship to painting. Perhaps as a way of, of illustrating that in a way true to DeSuvero's friendships and oeuvre, why don't I ask, who was Leonard Contino, who passed away in 2016, and how were he and DeSuvero important to each other? So 
Leonard Contino is a, a friend of Mark DeSuvero's who, who Mark met in the rehabilitation hospital after his accident. He you know, was younger than Mark, quadriplegic, and they were roommates and they, they became fast friends. And Lenny was, you know, was not an artist, but kind of took an interest in what, you know, this crazy guy who got thrown into his room in the rehabilitation hospital was doing. And Mark in, encouraged him to, to make art and bought him paints and brushes and canvases for, for him to just play around with. And, and it was, I mean, it was not easy for Leonard Contino to, to make art. You know, being a quadriplegic, he had, you know, almost no use of his hands. And in fact, the way that he, the only way he could paint was by strapping the paint brushes to his wrists. But, you know, by doing that, he, he was able to put paint on, a, on, on canvas. And one of the extraordinary things about him as an artist is that the more he did it, the more he had to do it. You know, he just became, you know, really consumed by, by painting and eventually, you know, became a very accomplished painter of, you know, precisionist geometric compositions, which given the fact that he, you know, really didn't have the use have could really didn't have the use of his hands and the kind of you know very fine dexterity that one would associate with an artist who makes precisionist geometric paintings it it makes those works even more extraordinary and he and Desuvero you know remain friends for for the rest of of Lenny's life and and you know they they traded work they collaborated on on works together and oh that's right that's you know, right and we, you know, we one of which um, we received as a gift recently, in a, a group of, you know, smaller scale works and works on paper from uh, Lisa Shackner, who was the curator at Gemini GEL in LA, and met Mark through that, and has remained friends with him, you know, from the late seventies, early eighties on. And who 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 gave who gave us works that were, you know, part of her collection, things that had been gifts from from Mark, and that were part of uh, Lenny's collection initially that that he bequeathed to her, and so she donated all of these works by Mark DeSuvero to the Nasher Sculpture Center, in memory of you know their friend uh, Leonard Contino. DeSuvro curated a show of Contino's work about a decade ago at, at the QArt Foundation in, in New York. Jed Morse, thanks very much. My pleasure. Opening on February 12th, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents I'll Be Your Mirror, Art and the Digital Screen. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition examines the screen's vast impact on art from 1969 to the present, including more than 60 works by 50 artists. Artists including Corey Archangel, Lynn Hirschman Leeson, Hito Sterl, and Hassan Alahi examine screen culture through a broad range of media, such as paintings, sculpture, video games, digital art, augmented reality, and video. Screens affect nearly every aspect of life today, 
Their pervasiveness has bred a 24-7 breaking news cycle, the looming corporate-sponsored virtual reality metaverse, unlimited accessibility and content, and an ease in how ideas and images are distributed, undoubtedly shaping culture in profound ways. The exhibition starts in 1969, the year of the televised Apollo moon landing and the launch of the Internet's prototype ARPANET, and continues through the present. I'll be your mirror, art, and the digital screen at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through April 30th. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Beyond the Surface, collage, mixed media, and textile works from the collection. Beyond the Surface explores how artists bring together disparate materials and ideas to create artworks that engage with all audiences. Since opening in 2005, the Nasher Museum has been dedicated to building a groundbreaking collection of contemporary art centered on diversity and inclusion. The museum's emphasis is on artists historically underrepresented, overlooked, or excluded from art institutions, with a particular focus on artists of African descent. In this effort, the museum supports global artists of extraordinary vision, whose works spark opportunities for thoughtful engagement. Welcome back. My next guest is Perrin Lathrop. Along with Niku Paydar and Jamal Sheets, Lathrop is a co-curator of African Modernism in America, 1947-67, to at the Fisk University Galleries in Nashville. The exhibition investigates the connections between African artists and American patrons, artists, and cultural organizations, such as the Harmon Foundation, the Museum of Modern Art, and historically black colleges and universities during the early Cold War. It also features The Politics of Selection, a commission from Lagos-based sculptor Ndidi DK that interrogates the collecting histories presented in the exhibition. African Modernism is on view through February 12th, after which it will travel to the Kemper Art Museum at Washington University in St. Louis, the Phillips Collection in Washington, and the Taft Museum of Art in Cincinnati. The outstanding catalog was published by the American Federation of Arts. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for about $45. Perrin Lathrop, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Why in the late 1950s and, and early to mid-1960s were elite white U.S. institutions, such as the Museum of Modern Art, suddenly interested in African contemporary art? Well, it's a pretty complex story, I would say, but it, it, it's rooted in changes that happened across the world in the post-World War II Era. We have civil rights movement in the United States, independence movements across Africa, and also the, the global Cold War. So I think that around especially independence in Africa, which didn't happen only, but kind of the linchpin moment was 1960, there was increased interest around the world, I think, in the contemporary art scene in Africa. And that was understood and seen as something that U.S. institutions should pay attention to. How much of what we see in your show, and to be clear, there are both United States-based artists and Africa-based artists in the show, although it's far more the latter than the former. How much of kind of that American interest in African contemporary art is motivated by artists in the United States. Incredibly, this was a moment of cultural exchange, which is part of the, the story that we're, we're telling in the exhibition. And 
there were African-American artists who had the opportunity for the first time, often because of airplanes and the, uh, the jet age, to travel more easily to the African continent. On the flip side, there were structures that were put in place, kind of Cold War era motivated structures that financially supported African artists coming to the United States, especially for education. And so there were, I, I think, the the opportunity, you know, for artists to then share the same physical space. I think that there was an interest among previous generations, especially of African-American artists, in, in thinking about, about African art, about, about Africa. But in this moment, there was increased opportunity to, to actually go there. And that, I think, changed the kinds of conversations that could occur between artists who, you know, were physically in the same room together. An institution at the heart of the project is the Harmon Foundation, which was a philanthropy founded by a white real estate developer in the early 1920s. And it will be or will put itself in the position of being kind of a hinge between American institutions and African artists in mid-century. In your catalog essay, you refer to Harmon as a gatekeeper. What role does Harmon play? And as you worked on the project, did you ultimately find Harmon's role constructive? The Harmon Foundation is an institution with a long and complex history. The story that we generally know about them is, is tied to the Harlem Renaissance and their annual exhibitions of work, visual art by African-American artists, which was written about, you know, by artists like Romare Bearden, kind of exposed the, the paternalism of the project of the Harmon Foundation. And that paternalism extends to the story that we tell in the exhibition. But I do think that we are adding to the history and understanding of the project of the Harmon Foundation with this exhibition by exposing the real role that they had in creating visibility for artists from Africa in the post-World War II era and the assembling of collections of modern African art and especially collecting soliciting information and research on contemporary African art scenes in the 1950s and 60s. And so their importance, you know, I don't, I, in this particular moment is hard to overstate, I think, because there are very few places where you can go to see such, such breadth of modern art from Africa. And so in 1947, an artist from Nigeria named Akinola Lashakon met Claude Barnett, who was the founder of the Associated Negro Press, which was a syndication service for Black newspapers in the United States. Lashakon met Barnett in Lagos, Nigeria. 
and expressed, you know, his interest in developing an American audience for his work. And Barnett then said to him, you should contact the Harmon Foundation. They are the kind of institution that is a part of a of a network that connects African American intellectuals, artists, and institutions, and they would be the ones to to really help you. And so I think that kind of connection speaks volumes about the role that the Harmon Foundation played. And so La Chacon then, you know, contacted the foundation, which was run by two women, Mary Beattie Brady and Evelyn S. Brown, sent his work, which they then exhibited in New York in 1948, so, so right after. And in addition to then continuing to show La Chacon's work, they then started a research project into understanding the contemporary African art scene in the kind of age of independence and contacted artists from across the continent, you know, tried to, tried really hard to to understand you know what was happening what the movements were who the artists what what the artists names were the schools you know universities where art was being taught their correspondence with all of these different players from across the african continent is housed in their archive in the library of congress and it really is one of the great repositories of a very very particular moment of modernism in africa and so i do have to say that you know we don't want to be overly celebratory in the tone that that we take, but I also think we need to acknowledge the importance of the information that the foundation assembled. There is Harmon Foundation material at lots of leading American institutions, including at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, archives at the Library of Congress, the National Archives. It's, It's easy for scholars to access which probably also ensures that Harmon Foundation narratives remain at the heart of a lot of the scholarship over the coming years. Before we talk about some individual artists, because there, there are just some awesome, especially paintings in the show, when we talk about Africa in the context of your exhibition and project, are we talking about mostly West Africa? Are we talking about the entire continent? Are we talking about certain places more than others? How should we think of this American lens on mid-century African modern art. I kind of want to take it take it back to the Harmon Foundation and also insert into our conversation another important institution that is crucial to the exhibition, which is Fisk University. You mentioned that there's Harmon Foundation collections, both uh, archives and also artworks at the Smithsonian Library of Congress, National Archives, but also, and importantly, when they closed in 1967, they divided their collection of modern African art between two institutions, Hampton University in Virginia and Fisk University in Nashville. And these are two historically Black universities, and they 
were chosen by the Harmon Foundation to be the repositories of this collection because of the relationship that they already had with Harmon and the demonstrated interest in these two institutions in exhibiting work by African artists and also connecting students and artists from those institutions with African artists. And so the Harmon Foundation, I think, felt that those two institutions would kind of carry on their interest in continuing cultural exchange between the U.S. and Africa. And they are both, you know, incredibly important parts of the history that the exhibition tells. So I don't want to not mention the importance of both of those institutions and the collection at Fisk University is the core of the exhibition that we have put together. And so because of, you know, the fact that the Harmon Foundation was a New York-based institution and that the primary language that the two women in charge of the foundation, Brady and Brown, spoke was, was English, there is definitely a bent towards Anglophone countries in Africa. So that, I think, is important to note that this is a, you know, a period where African nations are emerging from colonialism. And so there are particular diplomatic channels that place like the Harmon Foundation is following in, in trying to access information about the contemporary art scene across Africa. And so, you know, that's where maybe, you know, bias of of your own networks come into play and then come into inform the the collection that we're presenting in the exhibition. Well let's talk about some artists. One of my favorite pictures in the show is a painting by John Biggers, Kumasi Market from 1962. In the late 50s, Biggers travels to West Africa, to to Ghana, Nigeria, Togo, and to present-day Benin. So for me, this picture is not only, you know, a picture of contemporary life. It functions, whether Biggers intended it to or not, as a rejoinder to Orientalist painting of Africa. How do you think of, of this picture and why did you pick this one for the show? Uh, can I ask what you mean? You mean you said Orientalist pictures? Yeah, it's I mean, like for me, one of the th- like, I don't know the Biggers was thinking this at all. But I mean, there are lots of Orientalist European pictures of African markets, African and Near Eastern markets. And, and you know, this is not in that romanticizing vein, in that pseudo, you know, white gaze vein. Yeah, I mean, there are so many reasons why we chose this work for the show. It is stunning. There's so much detail to behold in the painting. What I find really fascinating is that it brings together scenes and individuals that he, I think, had thought about for a long period of time, because when he went to West Africa. He was documenting the things that he saw, the people who he met, and those were, those drawings that he made were then published in a book called Anansi, The Web of Life in West Africa. 
I believe. And so you can actually go through this book and pick out <laughs> particular people who are then represented in this market scene. And so I think that it really demonstrates his continued, I think, connection with, I think, real individuals that are then represented in this scene that is then kind of collaged together from from many different moments. It is important, I think, because it's also accessing a an idea of the marketplace, which is present throughout West Africa as a kind of crossroads and not only a crossroads of people from from different parts of the world, but also a kind of spiritual crossroads. And what also is incredible to remember about marketplaces, the market in in much of West Africa is that there are places where women's power, women's social and economic power is really on display because it it is women who are running the stalls in many markets in, in West Africa and where they really have power. And so I think that that's also underpinning what Biggers is is representing in this scene. And I want to also note that this the provenance of this work is, is a pretty impressive one. This was a painting owned by Maya Angelou and was in her collection, in her home throughout her life. And she really, you know, took solace and comfort in the woman at the the center of this scene. So really beautiful story, I think, all around encapsulated in this one work. You could also use this work to teach a class in composition. It's a spectacularly constructed painting. You mentioned Biggers's Anansé, the, the, the book of drawings that he published in 1962. It is available for digital borrowing. On the Internet Archive, we'll have a link on the show page on manpodcast.com. Speaking of women, there are not a ton of women in the show. I imagine there are cultural reasons for that. One of the most stunning portraits in the show is a portrait painted by a woman, Grace Salome Kwame. What is that picture and what is her story? Oh, I'm so glad that you <laughs> you have isolated her. And, and you are right to point out that there aren't very many women represented in the exhibition, even in kind of, I don't know, you could, could say this is a sort of revisionist history of, of modernism. Even so, there is real underrepresentation of, of women artists in the story of African modernism. This is, you know, due to to many different reasons, lack of access to fine art training, but also a, a prevailing sense of a patriarchal sense in the writing of histories of, of modernism in Africa. So I think that we also need to, to look to different kinds of art making than painting and sculpture to better understand the aesthetic contributions of of women artists when we tell the story of African modernism. And so this is something that I hope that the exhibition will open up for others. But in terms of Grace Kwame, she was an artist who worked in in Ghana. She was trained at the, the university in Ghana under colonialism. 
for for various reasons having to do with her responsibilities in the home towards her her family she had to to manage many different things in order to continue to create art and also fulfill her her responsibilities to her family she was a painter a sculptor, you know, ceramicist. She also worked in the museum in Ghana. And this painting is is a portrait of Gladys Ancora, who was a woman who worked in the home of, I think, her brother-in-law, um, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And it's just a really beautifully rendered portrait. So so sensitively, sensitively done. I think we really do get a sense of of the woman who who she is is representing. And this painting also we are so thrilled to have in the exhibition. She was an artist, Grace Kwame, who the Harmon Foundation was in contact with, but she never actually sent work to the United States. But this work was in the collection of her son, Atta Kwame, who was a very, very important art historian of modernism in Ghana, and also a really incredible abstract painter. Who, who passed away while we were working on the exhibition. So it really is so special and I think important to, to have this work in the show, especially, you know, given the connection to Atta, her son. Who wrote the catalog essay on his mother. That's right. Yeah, which is pretty great. One of the African artists in the show who was most involved in the white art worlds of Europe and the United States is Muhammad Malahi. For, for me, anyway, his 1963 Times Square is one of the real highlights of the show, just an absolute kind of jaw-dropper of a painting. How did he come to live in both Europe and the U.S., and do you see impact of you know that really broad life experience in his work? Yeah, well, I'll admit I don't know a ton <laughs> about Malahi, but I will try. He was important to include in this exhibition because, as you mentioned before, you know, there is an unevenness to the show's representation of the entire continent because of kind of inherited divisions between northern and sub-Saharan Africa in, you know, collecting histories in academia. The kind of intellectual and artistic traditions have been understood as separate, but it's one continent of Africa. And so we did want to make sure that there, there was an understanding that some of the same trajectories that brought artists from sub-Saharan Africa to the United States also applied and incorporated artists from from Northern Africa. So Malehi was one of those artists who I think received a Rockefeller Foundation grant to to travel to the United States. And he spent time in different cities, but especially in in New York, where he 
enrolled in different programs, one I think at Columbia, and then also, you know, maintained a studio in lower Manhattan. And so I think that his interactions with different artists who he was meeting at this moment impacted, you know, the conversations that he had and you know, the kind of work that he was making. And he was really interested in cybernetics and the impact of things like the screen on the way that we communicate and understand each other and understand things about the world. And so we see that, I think, in in this painting, Times Square, that is, you know, clearly in reference to the urban environment that he was experiencing in New York, but also trying to visualize the sort of abstracting of really complex information and that is then, you know, delivered to us through things like television that then, you know, are translated into this really vibrant painting, which some have kind of put in conversation with things like Pete Modrian's Broadway Boogie Woogie, though that that connection is is not, you know, totally, totally clear. But but we could put those works in conversation, I think. Yeah, catalog essayist Holiday Powers also draws a link between the picture and early IBM computer programming punch cards, which I also see. Yeah, it's a it's a super painting. Go go see it on, on manpodcast.com. So if Malahi is a good example of an artist who was navigating, I don't know if this is a phrase, but tricontinental art world, phrase now, another good example of a painter who was kind of engaging modes that appealed to non-African critics and collectors is Pili Pili Malongoy, who is represented in the show by (laughs) Snake Amid Flowers. And it's what seems like a really simple painting, but then when you see the title, you realize you don't see a snake and then you go find it. And it ends up being a pretty complicated both kind of picture and suggestion that kind of lives between cultures and traditions. And I'm guessing Malangoy is, 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 is a painter you got to know a little bit because, it's, because Malangoy is one of the painters in the Fist Collection. What about this picture particularly interested you? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just love the sense of discovery that it invites with the play between its title and then, you know, it, it, its composition, because at face value, it's it's this pretty, you know, bouquet of, of flowers, essentially. And then when you look more closely, you see this kind of nefarious snake um, entangled in the blooms. And I just love that that sense of questioning that, that the artist is, is bringing up here that I, I think, you know, this is a work that is created within the context of, of independence in Congo. And as we know, there were <laughs> there were many things that that happened in Congo after independence you know the assassination of Patrice Lumumba the great independence leader and a kind of instability that ensued from that and so i think that this painting is a a reminder 
to question <laughs> the narratives that are, are fed to you by authority figures, that a pretty picture might not always be what it seems. And so I think he's really, you know, communicating that idea with this work. The last artist I want to ask about is, I think, probably better known as an architect, Bemis Nuoko. It, it is one of the maybe most I don't know, maybe not quite nationalistic, but one of the most geopolitically pointed paintings in the show might be a way of putting it. What does Nuoko's 1960 folly show? Yes, I, I just love <laughs> love this painting this by Emerson Nuoko. He is an incredible artist. As, as you pointed out, he's known as an architect. He started his own journal and an art society, New Culture in Nigeria in the 1970s. He was a ceramic artist, also created paintings like this one early on in his career. And similar, I think this is a really nice pair to the Pili Pili painting because it was created right before independence um, in Nigeria, which you know, Independence Day in Nigeria is October 1st, 1960. And this work was painted for or was exhibited at the Independence Exhibition. And it represents a cockfight, a kind of abstracted cockfight in Pan-African flag colors, but also the colors of the new Nigerian flag, green and white. And it, it kind of is, I think, both maybe a celebration of independence, but also similar to, to Pili Pili is, is expressing a wariness because while individuals in emerging nations in Africa are celebrating, you know, newfound independence in this moment, there is also a lot of potential instability that can arise in this moment of great change. And so I think that, that this painting, Folly, is, is a reminder to, to ask questions and, you know, to think closely about what's to come in the future. Finally, one of the things this show does is present a moment of intense United States interest in African modernism, you know, running into the, in, into the 1960s. So what happens after that? What happens to American interest in contemporary African painting in the 70s or the 80s? I do think it's still present, but the kind of unofficial dates of the exhibition were 1947 to 1967. So this post-war period, starting with this Nigerian artist contacting the Harmon Foundation. And 1967, you know, r right before the assassination of Martin Luther King and the real important ramping up of the Black arts movement. And we're kind of telling a story that is, is right before that moment. And so I think post, you know, 1967, there is not the need for a mediator like the Harmon Foundation between Black artists uh, across the world. And so I think that that there are shifts that happen, institutional ones in a late 1960s moment that are are slightly distinct from from this very 
this story of the show that it is rooted in a kind of cultural diplomacy that might not be centered around, you know, nationalism per se, or an American nationalism in a later period. That's interesting. And of course, we're seeing, I think in recent years, a real resurgence of U.S.-based artists being interested in Africa, which makes this show all the more timely. Perrin Lathrop, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.